Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We have a White Rock Festival coming up May 5th through 11th in 2024. That's independent of us. If you want to have meals and all that kind of stuff there with them, uh, and you're not a worker, there's some sort of registration and fees involved, and that goes to, you know, they, they spent just on Renting, I think, porta potties it was over a thousand dollars last year. They did not break even. They actually lost money. They've already had some preliminary meetings. They have volunteer cook, a kitchen staff, and we have some new equipment that we're putting into place for a mobile kitchen and services. And we'll be graveling roads better and putting in another gate and lots of little things that will be done. And all those things cost some money and uh, somebody else is funding all that so they charge something for the entry. And there'll be, if you go to whiterockgathering.com, uh, uh, you'll eventually see all the listed all the instructors, each instructor. They do it for free. They offer the instruction for free, but a lot of times the instruction takes some extra equipment and so, and materials. And so there's usually a fee that covers those materials. But then whatever you create or produce, whether it's chipping flint or making rope or uh, pottery uh, or whatever, you get to take home what you create. And so anyway, they're hoping to get it up to, you know, three, four hundred people there. And the more they do that, the more they get the kinks out will allow us to have our own festivals there. And of course, so this is sponsored by White Rock Gathering, but all the facilities that we create will be belonging to the church. All the, you know, hard assets that are on the, on the, the property. And of course, they'll, they'll let us use their water tanks and all that. So anyway, that's coming up. But that's not the topic of today. I wanted to get that out of the way. Those are the announcements. Well, uh, I, I listened to a recording of a debate with uh, Mark Venucci and I really can't tell you who the other guys were. I can't remember their names. But uh, I, I thought Mark was really good. <laughs> the other guy, I mean, he held his own. You could actually hear that he was actually still working while he was debating these guys. You talk about multitasking. And, and I, I'm not sure what work he was doing. It might have been painting, but you could definitely hear his breathing was a little irregular as he was working. And... Uh, and he was holding his own with those. Of course, he's been at this a long time. And those guys were, you know, at least one of them was just completely immersed in delusion. But it is what it is. Every opportunity to to see people go out and challenge themselves and be challenged. You know, it's it's something that we have to practice to talk about the kingdom and explain things in the kingdom. And uh, we're going to go through a wide variety of topics today. We can talk about a lot of different things, uh, but we're we're going to try to always tie it back to the kingdom because uh, we see all these problems developing in the world today, and the solution is exactly what Christ said. 
Unfortunately, 90% of the churches out there are not preaching what Christ said. When did that start happening? Well, it started happening at least in 300 A.D. With the Acts of the Apostles, there were guys coming along and wanting to buy this ability to perform miracles. And uh, we, we may talk today a little bit about how, where does the power to perform these miracles actually come from? Is there an energy source that a person can be tapped into or tap into in order to help perform these miracles? I, I heard somebody used to be one of our ministers in, uh, but never really in spirit talking about the power of prayer and the prayer of multiple people. Well, there's power in positive thinking. And, uh, that's not the same as the power of prayer. Power of prayer is, is something else. And, uh, just talking about that power of prayer in that phraseology can be misleading and hopefully we'll we'll get to some of that but we'll start right off where we you don't hear us usually starting off with a prayer or anything but we're going to start off with a bible quote and of course anytime you're reading the bible i was just on a program uh, that will be released we'll release it on the network when they come out i have recorded it here i didn't do anything with the editing but i just recorded the whole thing so that if the person who we were guest on their show edits things improperly, we're going to make it a policy to try to record it here so we can go back and say, well, that's not what I said. Here's the whole quote. <laughs> Other than that, we'll just let them do the editing and put that out. I have enough to do. So that's coming up, but you have to be a part of the network, which you go to preparingyou.com and you hit the network links and you join the network in your area. If you're in Australia, we have a group for Australia. If you're in South America, we have a group for South America. If we get hundreds of people in Peru, we'll have a group for just Peru. If we have uh, hundreds of people in Scotland, we'll just have a group for Scotland. But right now we have, a, you know, basically Great Britain and Europe and everything. And uh, the idea is to form a network on the ground where you live, where you can actually get in touch with other people who are beginning to wake up to the fallacies and foolishness of modern religion. And, of course, that's a little bit of what Mark's debate was against, is people who who believe that they look at modern religion and they say, oh, this is a bunch of nonsense, or this is lies, and or they, they look at the character that we call uh, Yahweh in, in the Old Testament that Moses spoke to in the burning bush and in the uh, column of smoke and the column of fire. And, he, he, you know, he would go up on the mountain and actually doors would open up in this column of smoke <laughs> and fire. And he would talk to somebody inside. And that person was named by yod heh And we call that Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever. And he says this is a demonic thing. He had an actual particular name for the demon, uh, and I couldn't quite make it out, and I, so I'm not sure what he said. But anyway, he, he said, and this is not the first time I've heard this. This has been floating around for for at least decades in my own life. I've heard people saying it, that Yahweh was actually a demon and misleading the people. And I can see why some people would think that. But why they came to that conclusion is based on a... Misinterpretation, uh, we'll call it misinterpretation, we'll talk about that. There's 
disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. <laughs> so the information, because of their interpretation or translation, is one or two of those three categories. And because they have misinterpreted it, uh, what they, the message that Moses was receiving and passing on to the people, I can see how some people will think that that character that they call Yahweh was an evil demon. Because the, the information that they're receiving about what he supposedly told Moses is evil. And we know that from Jesus. Jesus said the Pharisees, who believed that they were interpreting Yahweh and they were worshiping Yahweh, hey, Jesus said they had it wrong. Now, he wouldn't even talk to them at times. He talked about them being, you know, wicked and, and vipers and all this stuff. But they were preaching Yahweh. How could they be vipers if they were preaching Yahweh? Because they misinterpreted the Hebrew language. They, they spoke Hebrew. They wrote Hebrew. They knew Hebrew, supposedly. But somehow or other, they were misinterpreting the words that Moses passed down to us. And although Mark, when he was debating these guys, was not getting into the real depth, he could hardly do it with that group. He was skimming across the surface with good information and made good points. And I'm sure if he did it again, he would have, he would do an even better job because that's what it does is sometimes it takes practice. But they, I could hear the one guy was kind of thinking like, what's he talking about? <laughs> but uh, they couldn't get into depth because there, there was one of the characters that was supposedly debating him was bringing up things like sushi and, and, and ginger, ginger between your layers of sushi and could you hear this and, and, and the Freemasons and, and all these other, just going off on all these tangents, and could not understand the very basics of the gospel of the kingdom, which Moses understood, and which Jesus understood, but all the followers of Moses, and all the followers of Jesus, or the people claiming to be those followers, don't always understand. So we're going to skim across some things, we're going to get into depth into other things, and hopefully everybody will get a chance uh, to ask questions as we get farther in. But because we're going to start John, I'm going to start off with a quote from John. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, a lot of people says, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you believe everything was made, right? You believe that everything is the result of some sort of cause and effect, right? <laughs> well, that cause, that original cause that put everything in order and seems to be maintaining that order. I mean, no, we haven't been everywhere in the universe, but there seems to be laws in physics that everything reacts according to those laws in physics, which is why... They have a lot of math involved in examining the laws of physics because everything seems to be fitting together. And when we come across a phenomena, we can look at that phenomena and do a little bit of speculation, a little bit of study, and we can say, well, wait a minute. There's a reason for that phenomena. There's a cause and effect involved in that phenomena. 
and it's not a phenomenon anymore. It's another law that we understand. Whether you're, you're going back to Newton or going back to Copernicus or whatever, there's a progression of understanding in the minds of some men. And they write it down. They pass it on to another generation. That generation learns it. And then, you know, the guy who invented, not invented, but the guy who was kind of the author of Saxon math. And... uh he was teaching math one day, and he came across a very simple problem. Had very basic, uh, common denominator of resolution of that problem. And he said he finally, in, in doing that one problem, he suddenly had an, an awakening to understand the mathematics of that problem like he had never quite seen it before. He, he had an awakening to his understanding of that math. Yet, he's a math teacher and writer of math books. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, wait a minute. I get why, you know, this 2 plus 2 equals 4. It wasn't that equation. But he began to realize why that particular, I think it was an, an algebraic uh, formula. He realized why that made sense. And he had a greater understanding. And so we often do that as a society if if people discover things and then pass it on. I mean, there were a number of people that were discovering what radio was and radio waves were. There were a number of people, but somebody gets the credit usually because they're the first to publish, etc. But there's a progression. But the reality is also there is a recession uh, uh, of that knowledge. We'll forget <laughs> some things. You know, like you could be in Greece and people are all doing the Pythagorean theorem and they, uh, they've got it all figured out. And then a couple generations, uh, people are saying, Pythagorean what? <laughs> they've forgotten it. So just as there isn't always a forward progression, there could be a backsliding. And we're gonna, that's going to come about over and over again. But going back to that original quote, in the beginning was the word. The word there... In the Greek, for the word, word, is logos. There are other words in Greek, in the Greek language, like rima, you could put there, and that means word also. So you could say in the beginning there was rima, but that isn't what it says. It says in the beginning there was logos. And logos has a huge history amongst, amongst Greek philosophers. It means, one way of defining it today is right reason. It's... It's correct understanding of why this mathematical problem works. A correct understanding of why this physics produces this result. A correct understanding of gravity. And of course you can understand gravity with, uh, you know, you know, Einstein, uh, theories or uh, go back to Isaac Newton's theories or go back before that. And everybody has some sort of figuring on how you you can, you know, the circumference of a circle and, and pi. And, you know, when they were first coming, trying to figure out pi, and, and they would uh, bisect and, and divide up a circle into a dozen or a hundred different sections or a thousand different sections, each one trying to calculate a closer uh, factor of this number pi. And then all of a sudden, somebody came up with a really easy solution, and boom, instead of taking 
half of a person's mathematical uh, lifetime of calculating, they could figure it out on a very short basis. And yet, many very smart mathematicians were looking at this problem and never came up with that solution. Then somebody wrote down that solution and passed it down. Somebody goes to college now, they memorize that, and then they go and they think they're as smart as the guys who came up with that formula. But they're not. They just memorized the work that somebody else did. If they if they had a stroke, <laughs> they couldn't get back to that understanding. And, of course, that's what happens in society. Societies have strokes. Society forgets what they learn. The fact is we can look at a lot of ancient societies. How was the pyramids built? You know, how, how did they make some of the steel and some of the iron that they made? We know they made it. We have it. But we don't know how in the world did they make this. We don't know how they made it. We can't duplicate it today. So, what have we forgot? I mean, there are vases that they found in Egypt, they found in Turkey, that are are made from extremely hard quartz, which is sometimes so translucent you can see through it like glass. But it's naturally formed quartz. And they have molded it into vases that are almost paper thin perfectly round and they cannot figure out how they did that we have places in Egypt in in the stones where they have drilled out a hole in the stones they they didn't do it with a chisel it's just perfectly glass smooth going through this solid rock they don't know how they did it we have unfinished work unfinished work often is the most informing because we see well wait a minute they're cutting this 10-ton granite block. And it's like a saw mark all the way through this granite block. It's not chisels. It's sawing through it of some sort. And they didn't finish. Because they went off the line and they just stopped the work and they did a different stone. Now, they'd already hollowed it out. Uh, they had done carving on it. But they somehow they got off on cutting off the bottom of it and they just stopped. And so you say, well, if they had cut it straight, they probably would have finished it. But we don't know how they made that saw cut. They didn't do it with thousands of little chisels. <laughs> but you look at all the drawings and uh, on the walls, and they don't show any mechanism for cutting these massive stones that would lead that kind of cut. We just don't know. We don't know how it is. So going back to this idea that in the beginning there was this word, this right reason, this cause and effect, this action-reaction. And it has some source for the original action. You can call it Big Bang. You call it, you know, the Big Bang is where you had nothing and suddenly you had a bang and you had everything. And they said, well, we believe in that, but we don't believe in God. <laughs> so actually, to me, it's almost harder to believe in that. Now, I can understand why people have a difficulty believing in a God of creation because everybody's reduced God down to like a little old man up in the up in the sky making all these decisions. I don't think God is quite that image that we create. Now, of course, if we look at the ten statements in the Bible, we're not supposed to create images of God. We're not supposed to create images of God out of stone and clay and wood. 
But we're also not supposed to create images of God out of our own imagination. God is whatever he is. Whatever this unmoved mover is in the universe. Whatever name you want to put on it. None of that has any effect on the existence of this force that is behind the uniformity of creation. But we identify that uniformity of creation with words like the Logos. Right reason. Another word for right reason is divine will. Another word for right reason is the law of nature. So you have the law of nature or nature's God or the right reason of God or the true cause and effect of God, the science of God. And and that is beyond our control. We can try to fathom it. We can try to understand it. We can experiment. We can write about it. But none of our opinions change whatever that God is. It is the unmoved mover. So when he's talking about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, they're saying that this right reason of God pre-existed everything and there isn't anything that didn't come about except through the influence of whatever this thing was that existed before everything else existed. Whether you want to call it the Big Bang God, (laughs) which I think is is rather a shallow way of looking at it, or you want to think that it is actually a personification of some creative force far beyond our imagination, which, of course, is really what the Christian God and even supposedly the Jewish God is. We can't know him. Our minds are too finite. It's too too much for us to grasp. We could say that we believe that there's something out there that exists that we call God. But we can't hold in our imagination the whole identity of of whatever that is. We just believe that that is the source. And people who say, I don't want to believe in God, you st- well, you just want to believe in the Big Bang. <laughs> or, or whatever it is that you, something caused it. Something began it. And it began a uniformity that we we can observe all over the place in the universe. Now, as we we go down further in verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that's another way of saying, And the right reason of God was made flesh. The uniform law of nature was incorporated in the flesh of an individual. And that individual dwelt amongst us. It was one with that word, that right reason, was tapped into that creative force in a way we've never seen before. Or never, we probably haven't experienced in our own life. I'm pretty sure with most of the people that are listening, they have not experienced that to the degree that this character Christ, supposed Jesus, supposedly manifested. But that's what the report is here, is that that individual... Jesus was the right reason made flesh. That he had this divine will and spark. Yet, he talks about, he's come to do the will of the Father. He has prayers in the garden that seem to be saying, I I don't want to do this thing that is put before me. I would like this cup to pass before me, but I will do the will of the Father. Fascinating approach 
I can't really explain it, but that's the report. I think it's worthy to note, but I can't, I can't explain why is Jesus, it sounds like he's praying to his father to let him get out of this thing that he has to do. And then, of course, we've talked about a title that is often applied to Jesus, not solely to Jesus in the Bible, but the Son of Man. And, of course, and I've explained it briefly, that the Son of Man is the Son of Adam. But he's not just any son of Adam, because we're all supposedly sons of Adam, in theory, I would assume. I I don't require people to believe it, but if we're descendants of this individual, whoever he is, whether he was actually called Adam or Adama or or some other name, that really is insignificant. We identify him as Adam, the original man, and we're all sons of that original man. And even biologists say we all came from some specific original ancestor, generally speaking. But the Son of Man would, according to the parables that Christ gives us, would be the obedient son of Adam. The one who actually is doing what Adam was supposed to do and what Adam was given as a responsibility to do was just to dress it and keep it and to walk with the Father and to, you know, uh, have power over uh, a dominion over the fishes and the animals and all these things. So the Son of Man would be the one who was meeting all those requirements. And of course, I would see and interpret that Christ was the Son of Man. But he also says that we are to become his brother. So that would make, when we did that, if we do that, then we would become Son of Man as well. So now we're going to shift gear a little bit. Just based on this idea, so that when we all become Son of Man, or Daughters of Man, and we're all doing the will of the Father then even though we may not have been begotten of the Father, we are by adoption sons of the Father. And we will have dominion too. Well, how far does that dominion go? You know, will we live hundreds of years as Adam was supposed to have lived and Methuselah was supposed to have lived? Will will we be able to heal people like Jesus was able to heal people? Will we be able to walk on water like Jesus was able to walk on water? Because well, he said, all these things you see me do, you shall do, and greater things than these also you shall do. So, now I don't think that you can obtain the ability to do those things because that's why you're seeking Christ. Because Christ didn't come to do all these fancy things. He came to serve man. And you can give, you can you can heal somebody and that's not serving them. They can actually make things worse for them. You, you can you can feed people, and you can actually make things worse for that person because you you may weaken them by giving to them. It's very clear that Jesus didn't just give to everybody. He wouldn't even talk to some people. So, what do we need in order to know what to say, what to do, what to give, what not to give? Well, that's Learning to walk with God so that when we give, we're giving according to the will of the Father. This creative force that has allowed life to grow in so many different places on this planet. 
if we don't do things according to the law of nature, the will, divine will, according to right reason, then what we do may be detrimental to the health and well-being of the animal kingdom or our neighbors or what have you. We can actually sow the seeds of destruction. So how do we know the difference in what we choose to do? Well, we need that divine spark. And Christ eventually gets around to explaining what we what we actually need. But we're going to get a couple of terms defined here. We have a capital reallocation and capital allocation. Uh, wealth distribution in capital allocation or capital reallocation. Because all governments today in the world, we see, they want to take money from one group and give it to another. They want to provide for the poor, and they want. To, and now we have literally millions of people coming across the border of the United States, and they're immediately given uh, debit cards. They're immediately given IDs. Uh, they actually, if you go to the borders where a lot of them cross, and you step through the the border there, and you just go a few hundred feet or two hundred feet or so, you'll find passports, ID cards thrown in the ground. Uh, they actually have fires sometimes at night and they burn those things so that they don't leave them laying around by the thousands. They burn passports and ID cards by the thousands because when they get through the wall and they turn themselves in, the governments that you have chosen for yourselves, and you could say, well, they cheated in the election, but you allowed them to cheat in the election if that's how they got into power. Your apathy, your sloth, uh, the leaders you did have in power already, they allowed all that to happen. So it's all back to you, and that's very important. We'll constantly be bringing the responsibility back to you. But we do that because we know the solution is in your hands. If you, if you want to go around saying that you're not responsible, you're never going to see what the solution is. You have to see your error, your your misinformation or your the disinformation you accepted as truth or the malinformation that you accepted as truth uh, and how that plays out in your life in order to alter what you do in order to bring about the solution. So I have here in my notes this idea of capital reallocation and capital allocation. And, and there's definitions for these things go about and you can find out uh, on the internet like capital allocation uh, means uh, distributing and investing a company's financial resources in ways that will increase its efficiency and maximize its profit. Well, let's, let's substitute instead of a company, you. <laughs> We're going to substitute you. The allocation of your resources, your labor, your sweat, your knowledge, your your time, all these things are your, you know, your right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are all things that are allocated to you by the law of God, the law of nature. And so if you want to decide how to invest those things, how to invest your time, how to invest your energy, how to invest your, your financial resources in ways that will increase the efficiency of your actions to the maximum amount of profit. Well, that doesn't sound very biblical, does it? Well, actually it does. And I'll give you 
just real quick one parable that we all we just covered in our study of Matthew is the is the parable of the talents. He gave five talents to one guy, three talents to another, and one to another. Those were allocations of resources to those individuals. One turned the five into ten, and the other turned, I guess, the three into six, or the two into four, or whatever it was. And the other one took the one and didn't do anything with it. That That is a parable about capital allocation. Your natural resource, your labor, your time, here on this earth, you are allocating that to get the maximum amount of return. And, and, or, let's put it this way, increase. Because remember, one of those commandments given to Adam in the beginning, and therefore is also on the shoulders of the sons of Adam, if they want to be obedient sons, because that's the only one who's truly the son of Adam, the other one is... You know, prodigal, I mean, he's maybe not prodigal yet, but he's he's gone off. He has no inheritance. But that one who is doing what he's supposed to do, he will be fruitful and multiply, increase. He will take what he is given and make more out of it. Every plant does that. Every seed goes into the One seed goes in the ground, grows up a stock of wheat, and on that stock of wheat, there could be seven, there could be 17, there could be... 27 kernels of wheat come out of that one stalk. And some some plants, you grow up one plant, it might produce a thousand seeds. One From one seed, a thousand seeds. That's built into nature. It's part of the divine plan of the law of nature. And so, if someone takes away from you some of that original capital allocation, your labor, your time, your energy, your your means of production, they take it away from you, you have less to produce fruit. If you sell part of it, if you sell the right to make choices for your labor, and of course everybody has done this, and we've explained that many, many times. The fellow who was talking to Mark, he couldn't see that. You know, Mark asked him, do you have a social security number? And, and you can approach it from that way, or you could say, well, do you have a right to all of your labor? You could ask, just ask that question. That's always a good way to, no, I'm not going to say it's always, but a lot of time that's a good way to start. Just ask somebody, do you get to keep all of your labor? Uh, all, all that you produce with your labor. If you can't keep all of your labor, if you don't have the right to decide what to do with all of your labor, whatever you produce, okay, say you have five denarii, you go out and invest it, and you produce ten denarii. Do you, do you, or you produce another five denarii on top of that, or you you invest the five denarii and then it produces back ten denarii, so you end up with ten denarii. If you do that, do you get to keep all ten denarii? He's going to have to tell you that he doesn't get to keep well no no I have to pay taxes <laughs> you know which which he probably does. So you produce ten denarii with your labor, but you're only allowed to keep eight denarii. Well then are you back in the bondage of Egypt? Because that's why it was in the bondage of Egypt. You know, you kind of sneak up on them. <laughs> in the bondage of Egypt Everybody could go out and use their natural resources, their natural rights to go out, you know, plant a field or make 
bricks or whatever. But if you made a hundred bricks, 20 of those bricks had to go to the government. They had to go to the government. You didn't get to keep them. They weren't yours. We call that the bondage of Egypt. So then you can ask the guy, so if you don't get to keep all of the fruits of your labor, you have to give 20% of it? Oh, well, sometimes I have to give 30%. Sometimes I have to give 40%. Okay, so it's actually, you're in worse bondage today than the Israelites were in the bondage of Egypt. No, 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 we're, we're a lot more comfortable. We don't have that kind of bondage. There's nobody whipping us. Well, there's not much about anybody getting whipped. There was a lot of whipping going on in the movie. But there's not a lot of whipping. There's taskmasters. But you got taskmasters today. People that are going to make sure <laughs> that you pay that 20%, 30%, 40%. So you have taskmasters today. They, they they don't whip you with whips. I mean, not literally with whips. But they will hold your feet to the fire to make sure that the proper portion of your labor that you have spent in the production of your fruits goes to Caesar, Pharaoh, Nimrod, FDR, Biden, whoever, you know. Uh, Trudeau, he's going to get a share of your labor. You don't have any choice over that anymore. You're in bondage. Okay? Write that down. Now, he wanted to think, no, I'm a free man. No, no. You're actually in bondage. You're, you're entangled again in the yoke of bondage, which the New Testament tells you that you will be. So that's kind of one of the ways to approach that. Another phrase that I'm going to take a real quick look at before we get into this a little bit farther and, and shift gears because I, I said this show is kind of about the past, the present, and the future. And and a lot of people may want to know what's coming in the future. Well, first thing you have to figure out is what went on before <laughs> in the past. And then you have to look at where you stand now in the present and then you might be able to determine what's coming in the future. But again, I want to get a little bit of my... Uh, uh, terminology. So, in uh, back to that, there's a, besides capital allocation, there's also capital reallocation. And uh, so, capital reallocation is uh, it's defined as capital reallocation as the transfer or sale of capital between productive firms. Or capital reallocation is a direct way to reallocate assets from less productive firms to more productive firms. Which, of course, we see in the parable. Where somebody got a denarii, or whatever coin that was, and he produced nothing with it. <laughs> he, he was one of those less productive firms. And he had... The coin that he had, that he kept safe by doing nothing with it, he had it taken away from him. That's reallocation. <laughs> so, and of course now, how, how, in socialism, we're gonna j- jump, I got several paragraphs here, but most of you will probably catch this pretty good. You know, if you were in a republic, you would be free from things public. And so, you wouldn't have to pay in 20% of your labor to support the government. Because in a republic, 
you you know, the government may have sources of income, but it's you're not it. You're not the source of the income for the government. In a republic, your assets, your uh, rights, your uh, ability to choose is in your hands. That's what a pure republic is. Now, indirect democracies, that's not necessarily the case. But in a pure republic, if you're still in a pure republic, you have the right to choose over the assets that God has given you. That life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But if you've moved over to a democracy, a democracy, 51% of the people might be able to take away some of your rights. And of course, now we have to look at the terms of your democracy. And we have to examine, have you signed any agreements with anybody <laughs> that says that they get to decide? You know, like maybe you work for the NFL, you know, and, uh, you know, you got a million dollar salary, but they put rules on you. Like, you got to be in by 8 o'clock, and uh, you have to show up for training, and, you, you know, you have to... You have to be able to tell all the different plays and everything. And if you don't meet those standards, you can be fine. They'll put it in the terms of your contract. And they can take money away from you. You don't, you know, you say out and get drunk, they can fine you. If you say bad things about the team, they can fine you. Because that's in the agreement, you see. So you, you, you may have signed some agreements over the years. Now, you, you may not even know when you did it, you know, but it doesn't make any difference if you know or not. As long as they weren't deceptive and deceiving you. And a lot of people think, oh, the government has deceived us. I didn't know I was, I know. If they wrote it out and they put it in the instructions, then if you're deceived, that's on your head. I, I can tell you, this, this is a real life story. Just, I got this from a politician just the other day. There's, there's rules in some states where they didn't used to have all these, you know, boards and and controlling agencies that would have boards that are making rules for everybody. But they have a lot of them now. Well, sometimes they're, they deal with health and sometimes they deal with the allocation of power, you know, distribution of the power grid. They They oversee the power grid. Now, the Power companies are the ones who build the grid. But they can say, well, you can build one here. You can't build one here. I mean, it's like drilling for oil. You have guys out there, bureaucrats, making rules that, oh, you can't drill oil there. Oh, you can't drill oil there. Oh, you can't build a you know, coal-fired electrical plant there. And they're making these decisions. They weren't elected, but they're making these decisions because they're on these boards. Okay, well, I have an example. I won't tell you the details of it. Where there was a board, it was a three-member board. And it was making big decisions affecting all the people in a given state. They have no knowledge of these big decisions. And somebody was retiring from the board. And so they wanted to put a new guy in. And of course, the the power companies, they want their guy in there. So they, they recommend this guy and this guy and this guy. Because... They know that they kind of will favor the power companies. And, of course, the government, they, you know, powers in the government, you know, they might come up, you know, like parties will come up and say, well, we want this guy in because we know whoever sits on this board is going to wield all kinds of power. They're going to say, they're going to say where the power lines go. 
and what power companies get access to. And they can make it difficult or they can make it easy because they can put all kinds of regulations on it. They get, only going to have three people on this board. Some boards have eight people. Some boards have 10, 12. This one only had three people. And there was quite a few people that were put up for this board. And they all got interviewed by the governor because the governor's got to approve. And then whatever the governor approves, then it's got to go in front of the legislature. You've seen that with uh, the U.S. Congress where where they somebody says, well, I want this guy to be a judge or this guy to do this. And they have to meet this approval. And there's a lot of backroom deals in this kind of thing. And they... They somebody put up a guy who's got 24 years of experience, very people-minded, very individual rights-minded, understands the, the the power companies better than and the subject matter better than most people, and uh, he was put up for it, but they didn't want him because they couldn't control him, so they just weren't going to appoint him. Well, one one per, one of the people in this process thought he was pretty good. There were a lot of people in the process, but somebody high up, I won't name names. And they kind of liked him. And they knew he was popular with a lot of people. And so by picking him, they would win a lot of popularity with a lot of the voters. But they wouldn't win a lot of popularity with the power companies because they wanted somebody else. Well, somebody read the rules. And in the rules... This three-man board, or three-person board, it says that you can't have two members from the same party, political party, because it's supposed to be nonpartisan board. It's not supposed to be serving one political party. At that particular time, they had three people from one party. Oh, it's a guess which party it was. But, so one was retired. He was of that party. So you had two people from the same party. And a third person applying. You had a bunch of people applying. Everybody but one person applying was from the same party. Well, it's a violation of the rules to have all three from the same party. It's a violation of the rules to have two from the same party. So guess who got in? The guy who wasn't from that that party. And the interesting thing is that guy has never been, in his 24 years of working in government, in political positions, has never been a member of a party. Like the Democrats or the Republicans, he's been an independent the whole time. Because he kind of holds a nonpartisan position. And so now, he's on there, so now they have to do something about the fact that there are two Democrats on that board still. One of them is going to have to step down and they're going to have to pick somebody else. They could pick another independent. They could pick a Republican. But they can't pick another Democrat. Yeah, they can only have one Democrat on that board. Nobody read the rules. For 10 years, 20 years, nobody's read the rules. And the rules are there to prevent partisan control of these agencies. And there may be more of those rules, but nobody reads them. Somebody came along and read the rules. I've been a big advocate for reading the rules. And, of course, that's what we're going to cover here a little bit in order to know the past, present, and future. The first rules we have to understand is right reason rules. Those don't change. The law of nature rules. Those don't change. You know, divine will. 
That doesn't change. All those are the same thing. You, you don't like divine will? Okay, use law of nature. <laughs> now, your opinion of the law of nature doesn't change the law of nature. The law of nature, we assume, is the laws of physics and uh, uh, bio... Uh, thermodynamics and all these different things, uh, uh, biochemistry, all these things, those, you can't change those rules. Those are built in. Compression of time and space and all this stuff, it's all built in. You can change some of the parameters, but you can't change the rules. That's the right reason. That's the cause and effect. So that's, that's one set. The other thing is the rules that we make for ourselves. You want to know what those rules are, too. Because every time you sign a piece of paper, you're probably making an agreement. If you have to sign a piece of paper like a receipt, I'm receiving this benefit. That's a, you're, you're receiving it based on the assumption that you agree. When you take an oath under penalty of perjury, you're going under agreements. Now, I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm just telling you that that's what you're often doing. Now, I also tell you what God says in the Bible about not doing that. <laughs> but uh, God lets you sign those agreements. You just don't get away with doing it without incurring consequences. Which, of course, those of you who have been around for a while know that those consequences are sometimes listed in the translations as the wrath of God. Which is really just the consequences of the law of nature. If you do this... There's going to be consequences. You jump off this cliff, gravity's going to take over, and there's going to be consequences, which you may not realize fully until you get to the rocks below. When you hit the rocks below, a lot of the consequences will take place in a single moment. (laughs) It will be sudden. And the reason why I say that is because the future holds many such sudden moments coming up. Well, I, well, I'm going to tell you about the process. I'm not going to define a, exactly how that's going to interpret for you. I couldn't because every one of you are different. Every one of you are in a different place. Uh, you will be in a different moment of time when the consequences come about. But there are many choices every moment of your life now that if you make those choices according to the law of nature according to the word made flesh, that it will alter the future. The moment always alters the future. The past doesn't alter the future, although the past will set a pattern for the future. It's what you do in the moment of the present that will alter the outcome For your future, at least. There are some things in the future you probably cannot alter, but you can alter your relationship with the future by what you do in the moment. So anyway, so we got allocation. I'm going to give you one more example of allocation and reallocation. And and those of you who have been going along for quite a while, you know, you understand the altars of clay and stone to some degree. You understand that they weren't piles of rocks where sheep were getting burned up and making God a sweet savor. That wasn't what they were doing. And if you if you still think that that's what they're doing, we have lots of articles and recordings and and thousands of footnotes to show you. That's not what they were doing. That doesn't make any sense. 
Moses wasn't teaching anybody to do that. Abraham wasn't teaching anybody to pile up rocks, set sheep on fire, and make God happy. That didn't make God happy. That's part of that mistranslation. And we could go into, I won't go into it in great depth, you know, why some of these other things that these people who think that Yahweh was, uh, was he called a macaco demon? Some sort of demon anyway. Um, no, he wasn't. A demon. (laughs) But he may not be what you think he was either. But he was teaching the way of righteousness. But the translators, not so much. (laughs) So anyway. So anyway. But if these altars were systems of social welfare, and they were, based on free will offerings, which the Bible tells us over and over again, that's what it says in the Old Testament, free will offerings. And... To stray from the free will offering and create a forced offering would make the word of God, the word of Yahweh, to none effect. So, like the guy who thinks he's an ambassador to God, are you taking any benefits? Do you intend to ever take any benefits? from? I mean, monetary benefits from the governments of the world who can give you nothing except what they took away from your neighbor or... Borrowed against the future of your children. They can't give you anything but those. There are, there's nothing on deposit for you that you paid in. All the stuff you paid in, that's gone. Top economists in the world who do the math know that all that you have paid in is gone. It was gone before you paid in because it was paid into a bankrupt system to begin with. And you've become a surety for the debt of that system and your children are a surety for that debt. And we explain all that elsewhere. But, so now these altars are actually gatherings of men where people go and give free will offerings to these men that they're connected with. They choose what man they give it to, what stone they want to lay it upon. Because it's a free will offering. Nobody's forcing them. And then that person who receives it can go out and take care of the needy of society, which was the role of the priests, to allocate what was allocated to them. Okay, because somebody freely gave them something that was an allocation from the kings of that government, that pure republic, which was the head of every household. The head of every household would receive funds from his sons and unmarried daughters in the, in the form of resources. And he would take a portion of that and allocate it to the stones gathered together, the friends of his community gathered together. They would pick which one they wanted to give it to. He would receive it. And he would reallocate it. Amongst their community. And by doing so. And, and there's other elements to this. But basically that makes the priesthood. That receives those allocations. In trust. For a particular purpose. And they're, they're burnt offerings, so they're completely given to these priests. Now, they reallocate it to the community in a way that strengthens the community. Okay, wow. If they don't do a good job, you could do what Christ did. And he says, look, I gave you $10,000 last year. How did you help anybody? 
There was somebody down at the local hospital that had a job collecting a paycheck twice a month. And uh, somebody looked into it and they said, I can't tell what this guy does. I never seen him. He never comes into the hospital. But he's getting a check every every couple of weeks, every two weeks. So he called the guy up and asked the guy to come in. The guy came in. He says, so what do you do? Oh, I do lots of stuff. Well, what is it that you do? Oh, I mean, I'm busy. I'm, I go all, and I do all kinds of stuff. And he says, but can you give me a list of what you do so I can take a look at what you've done? No, couldn't do it. So that guy fired him. And then he got fired <laughs> by somebody else. Long story, and I don't even know all the details yet. But you can do that in a republic. The minister that you do, donate to to take care of the needy of society... He's answerable to you. Now, you can't tell him what to do, but you can say, what did you do with what I gave you? What have you been doing? And he can't tell you. You can say, well, I'm going to give to somebody else. You'd be amazed at how much he can come up and say, well, I'll tell you what I've been doing. (laughs) If you're not going to give to me anymore, I'll, I'll let you know. He's got to convince you that he's going to be doing, reallocating what was allocated to him in the best way possible. You can't dictate to him about what you've given, but you can stop giving to him and choose to give to somebody else. And this puts all the ministers of your government, because that's what these priests are, they're ministers of your government, on notice. Now, it's a government that does not exercise authority one over the other, because Moses said that, Christ said that. Abraham really wasn't was doing that same thing. That's what he was implementing. It wasn't making anybody do anything. That's a different kind of government than when, when you say government, everybody thinks of the kind that forces everybody to do what they think you ought to do. Which is coming up on our next set, section. Uh, quoting Brett Weinstein in an interview with Tucker Carlson. But in order to put that in perspective, we have to understand that in the kingdom of God, You allocate funds to the man that you choose to allocate funds to, and he reallocates them to your your community. Some of those funds he will reallocate to the minister that he has. Just as you have ten families that give to a minister, that's the pattern, ten of those ministers will reallocate some of the funds that they have. They receive $10,000 in a given year. At least a thousand dollars of that will go up to another minister. He can allocate more, but at least a thousand by, you know, just generally speaking, nobody's going to enforce this. It's just a pattern. He's going to allocate up to the next minister. And then that minister is going to get together with ten other ministers like themselves and they're going to allocate up. And eventually it's just going to keep going up and allocating up. And sometimes they might allocate 10%. They might allocate 20%. Whatever they think that they could allocate. Whatever they think is needed. that The choice is in their hands. They'll just keep allocating it up. And of course, when the individual head of a household comes to his minister and says, so what would you do? Well, I allocated 10% right off or maybe 12% or 15% right off to my minister. And then I took the other and I helped out this poor widow and and this guy's house burned down and so I helped buy some materials. And, you know, I know I know a couple just heard about them today that 
they were building their own house. They had saved up their money. They were retired. And they were going to build their own house. And the husband had a stroke. And he couldn't do anything. And the wife had to take care of him. And that was taking up all of her time. Now, he has since gotten so that he can get around. And he's really improved a great deal. But he's not quite climbing up big ladders to finish the house. They have no plumbing in the house. I mean, they have a septic system and they have a pipe coming out. They have no toilet. They have to use an outhouse. Because that's when he had the stroke before he put that in. So a local church is being put to them and being put to them. If you guys get together, because the woman still, she she doesn't have to give 24-hour care to her to her husband. Because he's getting around a little bit now. But she's a worker. She has a limited capacity for work. You know, she's not a spring chicken anymore. And, you know, you're not going to have her building rockets or anything. But she's a worker. Well, she could go and help clean house for somebody. And that person could buy a toilet. <laughs> and somebody else in the church could go install it for them. And somebody else could come along and get a little bit of running water into the house. They have a well. They just didn't have the water in yet because they were right in the middle of construction. He He could have built the whole thing himself, but... Suddenly, he got struck down by a stroke. Now, we can tell you a lot of things that he might have been able to avoid that stroke. But the point is, that happened to him. And they could help him. Or, you know, I, I must have got three or four notices this week that the you could get some, the state through the county will put a new roof on your house. You just have to sign a few papers. <laughs> you know, the church shouldn't be... The, church should be taking care of anybody who's needy, but there are some people that need a new roof because they've spent all their money on booze and alcohol and they're lazy and they they got a big screen TV with a, uh, 500 DVDs <laughs> and they probably don't need a new roof. They need a kick in the butt. They need to learn how to handle their finances. All those things could be very important too. And the thing is that in a Christian, a really Christian community, hard to find. That's what everybody's trying to do is strengthen their neighbor. Because that's the treasure. That's what Christ, that's why he said you should invest in the treasure of the kingdom. Where's the treasure of the kingdom? According to Moses, it's in the pocket of your neighbor. It's not in a central treasury. So you're constantly trying to strengthen the people in your community. Not only in what they're doing and what they're able to do. But in their resolve to also be charitable because the kingdom of God works on charity. The kingdoms of the world don't, they work on force. This is why John the Baptist said you don't take care of one another by force. You do it by charity. That's why Jesus said it. That's why Paul said it. Everybody out there saying that they're a Christian today, 90% of the charity that is going on in their churches is going on through men who exercise authority one over the other. That's antichrist. So I just said that most of the churches out there are anti-Christ. Well, we shouldn't be so surprised. Most of the Pharisees were anti-Moses. They said they were for Moses. But they weren't doing what Moses said. And of course Christ said many would come in my name and say that Lord, Lord, but they would not be doing the will of the Father. So anyway, allocation, reallocation, and of course that funds that keep going all the way up and there's a lot more to it, and we explain it in other places, but we're going to keep moving along here. That this allocation and reallocation, eventually, as that funds go up, that's called the heave offering. That's going up through this network. 
Because in the kingdom of God, the top is the bottom and the bottom is the top. As a, as a congregant and head of a family, you're at the top. You're not at the bottom. You're at the top. Because you, you have a hundred percent say so over the allocation and distribution of your production. hundred percent in the kingdom of God. Now, most of you aren't in the kingdom of God. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. But if you were in the kingdom of God, that would be the case. And so that's what you're supposed to be seeking is that particular status, that particular way where you're living by faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and fealty. So anyway, all the way up through this, you have the Israelites talking about a heave offering. That's what the heave offering is, is going up. And then it gets all the way up. And of course, anywhere along this process of the heave offering going up anywhere along a minister at whatever level that he's at because these are ministers of ministers of ministers they could decide well wait a minute we just had you know over here in this county in Idaho we just had somebody's house get burned down or their barn got burned down or or the the father fell off a ladder was in in a car accident and, and he can't Bring in the money for his family. Like he could be forced. So you go to the family. You say, what do you need? And you, and you know the family. And the minute local minister knows the family. And you say, well, let's see if we can help him out. That's a social insurance network based on charity. That gives power and choice to individuals. Because now money that would, or resources that would have been allocated all the way up to the theoretically high priest who is the high priest because he is the servant of servants of servants. Not because he is ruling over anybody. He doesn't have any, he can't force anybody to contribute. He's not making laws for people. He's not regulating, you know, whether they can put in a power line or any of that kind of stuff. They're not doing any of that like the governments you have today. But they're not telling you have to wear masks and they're not telling you you have to get an injection. They don't have that kind of power. They're servants of servants of servants. You get to make those choices in the kingdom of God. But of course you're not in the kingdom of God. So you got other people making those choices and you're thinking, well, they're usurping authority that is not theirs. And in some cases you're absolutely right. Some cases. Not as many as a lot of people want to think. But in some cases you're absolutely right. But you can't do anything about it. Because you've dissolved the social bonds that make you a unified people. Those social bonds were living by faith, hope, and charity. That's what created the social bonds of a free society. But you've opted to develop an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the rule of force. So you've degenerated as a society, and in many cases as an individual, and in many cases so degenerated, you can't even see clearly anymore. And we'll get we'll get to that hopefully. So, anyway, anywhere along that going up, the heave offering could come back down or co- go laterally. They could say, "Well, wait a minute, we have a real need over here in Idaho, or we have a real need over here in Poughkeepsie, uh, and uh, I'm going to take some of the ten percent I would have passed up. Maybe I'll only send eight percent up. I also take some other funds that have come my way, and I will allocate them laterally." Or maybe I will give them down to a minister that is below me in this reverse order of hierarchy uh, because he knows these people better and he can allocate 
those resources to, it's like the body. You know, you've got blood flowing through all of your veins all the time, unless, of course, you've got a recent injection of an, uh, of some foreign substance that is blocking your veins. But if normally all your veins and arteries are open and blood is flowing through them. But if you started running, or say you ate a big meal, you ate a big meal, a lot more blood's going to go to your stomach and your intestines because you're going to be digesting that meal. And if you've got a lot of sugar in there and carbs, well, then it's got to go to your pancreas, and, and your pancreas will get more blood. And uh, yeah, maybe your kidneys will get more blood because they have to do more filtering because you've got a lot of junk. You've been eating a lot of junk. <laughs> so anyway, that takes place. But now all of a sudden you have to run. You know, dinosaurs have come in. You know, raptors have come into the park and you have to flee them. So now you're running. Digestion is going to stop. You're not going to be digesting anymore. And now the blood's going to flow to your muscles and to your lungs. And it's, you don't have to decide that. You know, you're not sitting there at the controls. Your body will do all that. Same way in the kingdom. You can't keep track of all the needs that might occur in a whole network of thousands of people. But you can keep track of what your minister's doing and he can keep track of what his minister's doing. And if everybody does their part and be diligent in the weightier matters, which is what Christ said for us to do, then your body will become functioning at a much higher level of efficiency. And that's that's basically the kingdom. So eventually, whatever gets all the way up to the high priest, he they have this thing where he comes out and he does a wave offering. Well, that wave offering is is the excess that he doesn't need going back to where it's most needed throughout the whole kingdom of God, which could be in other countries, uh, could be, you know, could be in Gaul, it could be in Galatia, it could be over in Corinth, it could be over in Ephesus, and of course that's what we see going on. Paul's taking supplies where they're needed. Other ministers are doing the same. We just don't know all those ministers are. But that's what they were doing. They were taking care of one another. And, you know, all the home churches, they want to, they say, well, we all gather, the early church was all gathering in tens, under, you know, or they say they're gathering in small groups, family groups, and homes. Absolutely. But Paul just wasn't going from house to house. I mean, they does say, rightly dividing bread from house to house. What bread? That was a system. They call it a daily ministration of pure religion. So anyway, I know a lot of you are familiar with it. Let's look at what bread... Weinstein said about Homeland Security has issued a memo on terrorism, defining terrorism to include the publication or dissemination of misinformation. Like you say something that is incorrect, you didn't know it was incorrect, you thought it was correct, but you were in error and you said it, that's misinformation. That can be construed as terrorism according to this new definition of Homeland Security. Then there's disinformation. If you're distributing disinformation, that could be counted as terrorism. Well, disinformation is information you know is not true. I don't know how they know you know it's not true. But you're disseminating it to people that you know it's not true. You know, like the dossier. (laughs) 
So that would be terrorism. So, you know, of course, now, you're not going to get the people who distributed the dossier that was completely made up and created by bribing people. And, and uh, you know, it was just, it was just nonsense. That they're not going to get arrested for terrorism. But that disinformation would be counted as terrorism, too. And that might fall under terrorism to some degree. But then there's the third category. Malinformation. Malinformation is also listed by Homeland Security as an act of terrorism. Well, malinformation is information that is true, but it may undermine the acceptance of the authority of the government. So basically what they're saying, if you criticize, say, the disinformation that the government put out, or maybe just the misinformation that the government put out, and you criticize it or point it out that, that oh, they said this, oh, no, no, that's not true. You know, like you said, oh, well, no, masks don't actually work. <laughs> Even though it may be true, based on studies, published studies, you publish those studies, you pass around, you know, like we have a page up, numerous scientists at Preparing You. You can go to Preparing You, type in there in the search engine the word numerous, and before you get it typed out, it probably says numerous scientists. You can go there, and we have dozens of dozens of top-notch scientists, links to the studies that they were making during the beginning days of COVID and, and farther down. I actually just recently posted, uh, you know, some uh, some uh, references to some of the studies uh, so that you can go and listen to this top doctors, top scientists. Luke Montagnier, I just added to his section, Luke Montagnier, and how he, many of his predictions have now come true. Nobel Prize winning virologist. And he said all kinds of things and we just quoted him. Even though that's true, what we quoted, those are real studies and we're showing you where they are at. That could be construed as malinformation because some people might not trust the disinformation coming out from the government or the misinformation that may have come out from people that the government liked. You know, like Ferguson, who came out with ridiculous predictions that ended up being absolutely not true and he had to roll them all back. When he first came out with us, way back in the very beginning of COVID, I just, you know, I, I, I heard these from the BBC uh, I have a son-in-law who listens to the BBC all the time and he was telling me what the guy was saying and I said, well, who is that? And, and I went and looked him up. He was notorious. He he was a fairly young professor. But he was already notorious for these studies that ended up being completely false. Uh, bad math, bad statistics coming out of his studies. He didn't know what he was doing. He's He's been fired for having sex with one of his students. and But before he was fired, he got lots and lots of money. He got a $250,000 grant from Bill Gates just before he came out with the data that said COVID was going to kill millions upon millions, millions of people. And it was so frightening, the information that he was putting out. The local doctors here thought they would need 300 body bags in our county in the first month. 
And they were actually trying to find where they could get refrigeration trucks to refrigerate all these 300 bodies in body bags based on the data that Ferguson was putting out. But I just went, you know, his culpability with, I mean, he got animals put to death under his claims that certain bovine diseases were going to cause all kinds of problems in England. And and they were actually rounding them up and putting them to death and burning the bodies because of his predictions. Completely bogus predictions ended up not being true, caused millions of dollars worth of damage and disruption of lives. But everybody was willing to listen to him. And then now he comes out with the COVID predictions and everybody just jumps on like this guy knows what he's talking about. Because the media said, oh yeah, he knows what he's talking about. He's been around for a long time, but nobody looked at his record. I looked at his record. It was available. You could just look it up. <laughs> it wasn't a secret. But that's the other thing that these altars that are operating based on faith, open charity can do. And I'm going to give you a heads up that if you live that way, something's going to take place in your own brain, in the brain of your ministers. They're going to be able to see what other people don't see. They will have scales from their eyes removed. And they will become the source of your news. They will become the source of your information. And you will begin to see what is misinformation, what is disinformation. And of course now, we're not a secret society, but we're private religion. And so we can do that in private religion. But you, you won't be able to do that in the media. You won't even be able to do that in the Google groups. Eventually. You can do it right now, but eventually they will even police that. And I can see them putting the software in place to do it. I mean, they're changing the software that's already in place so that they can see, they can actually see what you text on your phone. If you text misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation on your phone, they can close your phone account. You won't be able to call anybody. They can do that. Technically, they can do that. I mean, it's a private company. (laughs) So, you can see all these things coming into place. But if you were seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which the fellow that Mark was debating, he has got no clue what that looks like. He might have a clue. But he doesn't have enough clue to put the pieces of the puzzle together. We're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. We're going to go, we're going to shift gears again, and we're going to go. The critical thing is, is that legal charity, which is pervasive throughout the country today, ever, throughout the world today, which is charity where you force your neighbor to contribute to the taskmasters of your system, and that goes to the priests of your system, which you call them bureaucrats, you know, I mean, you go down to the DMV and the people that wait on you. That's Those are the priests of your system. <laughs> There's usually a, a bigger priest in the back room. I've, I've told stories about where I talked to the guy in the back room. But most of the clerks up at the front, they're, they're your clerics. I mean, that's where the word clerk comes from. I mean, excuse me, that's where the word cleric comes from. It's clerks. The clerks and clerics of your kingdom are the guys in the DMV office and the guys in the Social Security office, etc. And they that that is your religion. That's how you take care of the needy of your society is through that system. And 
we use Social Security, welfare, uh, food stamps, uh, unemployment. That's all managed by the priests of your public religion. If you want to read more about public religion, go to Preparing You. Look up public religion. Out there on the right-hand side, you can just type that in. It'll take you to an article with all kinds of footnotes explaining what public religion was at the time of Christ, at the time of the early church, what they were doing, how they were providing for the, the, the needy of society through public religion and how public religion was funded, how they had their heave offering and their, their wave offering. It seems like their wave offering didn't get waved back to the people they got waved back to their buddies. <laughs> I, I shared on Facebook where several, uh, they're actually Republican congressmen, are, were pointing out that if you want to be on one of these committees, these committees are like those, that original board I was telling you about. If you want to be on the committee, see if you have a majority is Democrats or you have a majority is Republican, you have a control over a lot of these committees. So you get on the arms committee, you get on the, you know, welfare committee, I don't know what all the different names are, but, you know, all these different, but those committees decide what bills go forward and how those bills are written and, and who gets what and, you know, finance committee, all these kind of stuff. If you want to be on those committees, you have to pay your party tens of thousands of dollars sometimes to get on those committees to have a voting power. It's not about election, it's about money. That's built into the system now. And it wasn't always that way, but it is that way today. And so if you want to get on that committee and there's a lobbyist who wants to get you on that committee, he can pay that 10000 20000 30000 to the Republican Party and your name, he put your name in and your name gets into that committee. And this is what they're doing all the time. It's all about money. From the top to the bottom. All the stuff they tell you in the news and all the speeches they get, that is just schmoozing you. And and you're so susceptible to it. But you're also so dependent upon it. Because it's weakened you as a society. So almost all your problems, the greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and Benefits or bounties, donations, and benefits, depending on your translation. And the masses continuing with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of the rule of force and violence, which is what you do. I mean, all your benefits come because somebody forced your neighbor to contribute. That's not a republic. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the reverse of the kingdom of God. That's antichrist. Because of your appetite for benefits, that's what you've instituted. And the people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others, property tax, uh, income tax, all these taxes, because income tax is a tax on the property of your labor. Property tax is a tax on the property of your assets. And if you go out and buy, somebody was just telling me this the other day, you've got a company over there in Western Oregon. And you you need a backhoe, and you need a drill, and you need uh, a dump truck. You go buy them, you're going to have to pay the state a tax based on their value because you bought those things for your business. Your business is going to have to is going to owe the government because you expanded the resources of your business. You're not free people, not even close. 
don't even slightly look like a free people. Now, it may take a little humility to admit that. But if you don't admit that, we can't fix that. So, you have to admit that. And, and now, you're not going to fix it overnight. You're not going to fix it all at once. And, of course, this is you got into this mess gradually. Now, it's a very deep hole that you're in. Now, you want to figure out how do we climb out. Well, I can throw you down a rope. Uh, I can throw you down a ladder. <laughs> uh, you, you can start cutting footholds in the sides. And you might need, if you're going to come up with a rope, you might need the footholds and, and that. And you might even be able to use a ladder say, I, I, it, you've dug yourself into a 50-foot hole and I've, I've got a 40-foot ladder over here. I can stick that 40-foot ladder down there. But you still can't get out of the hole with a 40-foot ladder if it's a 50-foot hole. So you may need a number of things. But Christ was clever. He created a system where you could start climbing out of the mess that you've created one step at a time. Now, just a heads up, and you've heard me say this, you can't get back to the kingdom from where you're at with your own energy. If you could, you'd think you could save yourselves. Or if we all got together, we could all save ourselves. It's going to take a miracle. But then I believe in miracles, so I'm okay with that. But I know if you don't try, you don't do. And you have to try. You have to seek. You have to persevere. You see? You have to strive. Those are words Christ used. I didn't make those words up. Now, you're not going to succeed just with your perseverance and your striving and your seeking. But you still have to do those things. Know this. God's going to have to come out and meet you. And he will begin to meet you with inspiration. He's going to awaken your mind a little bit. He's going to help you on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. And you're going to be tempted to be slothful. You're going to be tempted to be, you know, angry and judgmental and lazy and all these things. Those temptations will come. And every time they do, that's an opportunity for you to see, I'm not quite the man I thought I was. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little, I was, I wasn't really, I was being a little lazy or I was being a little slothful. That's good because humility is a key ingredient to removal of those scales from your eyes so that you can see. It's a key ingredient. Humility is a key ingredient. And one of the key ingredients towards humility is forgiveness, forgiving others. Not blaming, oh, it's your fault. Oh, if you didn't make me do this, then I wouldn't have had to go and do that. No, take back your responsibilities first, and then you will see your rights oozing back to you. And and know this, the more rights that come back to you, the more responsibilities you get to exercise. So anyway, so it's the covetous practices that has brought us into bondage. And, it, you know, as it says in Matthew twenty twenty five, and Mark ten forty two, and Luke twenty two twenty five, and he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they, which it means dominion, we actually see that word translated dominion other places, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. So, just gave you the example. All the governments of the world, we're not like them. We're not going to exercise authority. But you need to start creating that alternative. And the amount of intensity of that, the more you do that, the better off you are. But the reality is, 
You know, like I was just talking to somebody this morning. Until people give up, if you, if we gave up, if we just made legal charity, outlawed legal charity in the United States today, no more benefits from the government. You, you give everybody 30 days to join a church, join with other people, prove to other people that you're not a lazy drug addict or, you know, that you're, uh, that you're a pimp somewhere. <laughs> Cause there's pimps getting a government check every, every month. That's just the case. Uh, that, that's a reality. If you don't think so, uh, there's pimps getting food stamps. Yeah. A real, real good pimp, he probably doesn't even bother with it. It's not worth it, but they'll get, get food stamps and, and they'll hand them out to, you know, their, uh, stable. And the girls will eat on food stamps. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they, but the reality is, is that you have to end all that. You have to tell everybody, and, and you announce to all the churches, you, you churches, you have to start, you want to stay tax exempt, you got to start being, somebody was just, what state was that, Ohio, somebody was telling me just about a half hour before the program, that there's a preacher in Ohio, as a church, and he's next door to a homeless shelter, and they take the overflow from the homeless shelter because the homeless shelter fills up and there's guys there that they won't take in and they take them in and they give them a place to sleep at the church and the preacher is now being threatened with jail time because it's a misuse of his permit on the property and of course his permit uh, you know the, the purpose of that property I don't know if they own that property I'll lay you odds that they're an incorporated church. They're not organized like Christ said to organize. The area is zoned for, you know, a homeless shelter. I've seen this down in California where they had a residential section that had a church in it and he started opening it up to the homeless and then you had a large amount of homeless coming into the community and with that occasionally you get crime. And so the people complained and what they were citing him with ordinances that he didn't have a permit to create a homeless shelter there because it was zoned differently. Well, this guy's got a homeless shelter right next door. He's just taking their overflow. But if they were organized properly, they could get away with doing that. But they now, I mean, it was easy to organize this way a long time ago, but now with all the other things that they put into place, that becomes a little bit more difficult, but we explain that. We will show that. But we're not going to show it to everybody. Every swine that wants to get government benefits, we're going to show it to the people who want to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we need more people. We need more congregations, more people that are willing to repent, think differently, and go this other way. So the other thing that I was going to talk about is, uh, I, I mentioned it a couple times. There's these places out there that, like uh, Gobekli Tepe, Karahun Tepe. There's quite a few tepes. Tepe seems to be a, a region there in Turkey. And they have these old buildings because we're, we're taking the past and we're going to go into the future. So let's take another look at the past. Is that they have these stone monuments there. And I mentioned them. Somebody sent me a video. As a matter of fact, I think he's in the chat room. Uh, sent me a video uh, that was by David Morin, I think it is. Or Miano. Yeah, David Miano, I think it was. But anyway, uh, he was... Critical of Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock has done a lot of reporting on this. Now, I've known Graham Hancock way back, I mean, 40 years ago. <laughs> you know, I mean, when he was a young guy, 
uh, Boris Said had drilled into that room under the Sphinx, you know, out there on the Sphinx plateau, drilled into that room. And, uh, they, they, you know, and Boris was calling me on a regular basis and was talking about me going with him along with another minister of our church to examine this room. And that, the long story of what happened, Boris got ill and now he's passed away. His son is still around, but uh, by the same name. In that room, there was a frequency coming out, and that's why he got a hold of me and this other guy. Uh, the, he got a hold of me, and I got a hold of the other guy. But anyway, he was giving me updates on a pretty regular basis, and Graham Hancock was in on kind of the ground floor of this, and he had a number of choice things to say about Graham. And Graham's been all over the place over the years and everything, but he, as a reporter reporting on these things, he doesn't do half bad job. He does jump to some conclusions now and then with less than full facts. But, I mean, as reporters today goes, he's pretty good. <laughs> but uh, David Miano had a lot of critical things to say about him. But I could give you a lot of critical things I could say about David Miano. And and there's a couple other guys. Uh, I'll throw out these names so you can look them up. Martin uh, Sweatman, which is pretty much spelled the way it sounds, Sweatman. But he's, he's written a book... Uh, Prehistory decoded, and he's a—he's really—he's a scientist. He's not an archaeologist, but this is his hobby. But he's into data and statistics and analysis of statistics and everything. And he's come across some unique observations, and he's put out some video. And of course, David Miano is another one of these guys that wants to criticize him. David Miano looks at these different sites and he says, well, there's a natural progression to the caliber of making the stones at uh, Gobekli Tepe. And uh, no, there isn't. <laughs> there really isn't. The, those big monolithic stones, they're, they're, they're carved all the way down to the bedrock and they carved out a hole in the bedrock and they put these monolithic stones up and stuck them into the bedrock like a mortise and tenon. And they were there. And, and these are magnificently carved stones that were around a long time ago. And uh, now they've checked those sites, carbon-14, which is limited in, in its scope and not always reliable. You know, it's another one of those deals like Ferguson that, you tell me that this is the date you got. I want to see how the the samples were collected and who got the samples and what you told them before he did the testing. Was it, did you go to more than one lab and what did you tell the lab when you were, you know, because you can only carbon-14 organic matter. So where did they get the organic matter? Well, there isn't any organic matter with those original stones. All the organic matter they got is through all these other stones that we see laid in around those stones. It's very clear that these other stone walls were not made by the same people that made those monolithic stones. They're not even worked. Most of them are just stacked on top of each other. They're broken rocks. Occasionally, there are parts of stones that did fall down that were a part of the original scope of things. And uh, so it's very clear that somebody came along, found these huge stones sticking up. They did not have in any way, shape, or form the ability to work stones like you see there or even minor bricks and stones. 
they didn't have the ability to do that, even though some of these stones are quite a bit softer than, you know, like the pyramid stones. But they didn't have the ability to work those stones. There's no stone tools around that they found anywhere that could work those stones. But the walls they built clearly were built long after the others. So even though they're going back to, you know, uh, 12,000, uh, 10,000 BC, 9,000 BC anyway, uh, which is 12,000 years ago, uh, th- that's the stone walls. That's not the monoliths. We don't know where the monoliths. And there, there's, there's just a, a plethora of all kinds of excavations going on. And a lot of them end in the name Tepe. If you go to uh, Karahan Tepe, um, which is not within, you can actually see one site from the other pretty much. But uh, it's very different. They they carved, you know, they got like 15, 20 foot high columns there. But they carved out the bedrock down to the the bottom of the columns. The columns are still a part of the bedrock. So they, whatever they used to carve that down, it wasn't chip and flint. How did they do that? We don't have any of the tools. Somebody carved all the way down. Now, I did mention that they, uh, it appears that they filled in uh, Gobekli Tepe. And it didn't just fill in with natural sediment. And there is some debate about that. I will admit there is some debate about that. But most of the arguments that debate that, they really are inadequate debates. That, I mean, they're not debatable items. They're, they're, they're not, they're not, it's not really a logical proof. It's a point in some cases. They're making a point, but it doesn't prove one way or the other. Any more than you could say that was intentionally filled in. But who filled it in? And how did it fill in? It's not filled in with normal sediment. There's definitely all kinds of rubble thrown in there that does not seem to have any reason for being in there. But exactly what, you know, it's like I've, I said when we were doing our study through Exodus, when you're looking at these old, you know, trying to figure out what was going on in Egypt, whether you're at Averis or wherever, and the archaeologists say, uh, what do we have as... Uh, Rags and rubble. <laughs> That's what they, they look at. Is they got bits and pieces, and they put them together, and they try to say, well, what was a society? I, I actually saw a movie recently, Leave the World Behind. Do not waste your time. <laughs> it, 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 is a, it was written by blooming idiots. <laughs> I thought, like, these people should all die. <laughs> Natural selection, because they are so stupid, I can't hardly believe it. And, and then somebody just, actually I mentioned it to somebody just today, and they said, uh, Obama helped write that. Did you know that? <laughs> oh my gosh, I should have known that before I went and wasted my time watching it. So anyway, um, someone says, there is no so-called Sphinx in ancient Africa. What you call Sphinx is actually the goddess Tefnut. Well, that's fine, but... If I went around and used the word Tefnut, nobody would even talk, know what I'm talking about. There is a statue today which has been recarved, repaired, <laughs> and they call it the Sphinx. And if I say the Sphinx, people know where I'm talking about. And uh, 
do you know what's in the room underneath the Sphinx? <laughs> Which is not, it's partially underneath the Sphinx. But, and, and do you know who put it there? And why it's resonating at a particular frequency? And why they kept canceling Boris Saeed's permit to open up the room that he had discovered. He discovered several rooms. This was back in the day when, in order to do ground penetrating radar, you didn't have radar. You had a sledgehammer and sound equipment. <laughs> and you would bang the ground and they'd get vibrations back. But they definitely found rooms. They've definitely got rooms with objects in it. They definitely bored into at least one room. And they definitely got a resonating frequency coming out. So who kept canceling this famous archaeologist permit, which he got? And why? Well, I've told that on another show. So, yeah, I, I'm familiar with a lot more than some people think I'm familiar with. <laughs> but uh, somebody says, be wise as a serpent. That's whose name that was that wrote that. I just happened to see the Sphinx word. I don't know. If, normally, if you want to address me to comment on what you're putting in the chat room, you're going to have to put my name at the beginning so that I know you're talking to me because I can't go through and read all these different comments that people are making in the chat room. So, anyway... But that's not the topic of our, our discussion. I will say that now, they they know where the Sphinx, which has a certain kind of erosion on it, not talking about the carved face that is not the original face or anything. That's clearly carved later. And, of course, there's all kinds of ancient writings that talk about the guy who discovered the original statue, which was long before the building of the pyramids. And uh, But people carbon dated debris that they found there in the repairs. But we know the repairs were actually carved to fit eroded sections of the original stone. And so the the organic matter that they were carbon dating, again, I'm highly suspicious of carbon dating whenever you do it. So don't don't give me lectures on carbon dating is not proven science. <laughs> it is what it is. And it can tell you some stuff, but it can also mislead you. But anyway, the organic matter was found between the repairs and the original stone. That is, if you really want to know how old it is, you need to open up the room. And you need to know why those permits were constantly retracted. He'd get it again from one section and retracted. And then he would get it again and then it was retracted. And eventually he found out who was causing it to be retracted and uh, if you you know it would be like the World Economic Forum although it wasn't really around then at that time we're going way back I've been at this a long time and so anyway back to David Miano he wants to believe that there's a gradual if you want to hear a critical video of him uh, there's an interview with Martin uh, Sweatman uh, who is that author of Prehistory Decoded and uh, it's on Uncharted X Podcast 5. Uh, he And I could probably put some of these links in here because uh, I did save some of the links. Uncharted X, he's, he's pretty good. I mean, he's kind of an amateur, but I, I mean that in a positive sense, uh, not in a negative sense. And he talks about Nimrod's uh, accumulus pile, if anybody's familiar with that. Anyway, I'll see if I can put them into the chat room before we're done. The theory is, is that those big monolithic stones were built maybe 20,000 years ago, before the Younger Dryas. And they were built either because they knew 
a disastrous event was going to take place, or it did take place and they put it up. I actually am suspecting that some of them were built before that. Now, there's there's different monoliths going on here and different drawings on different ones. They weren't all done by the same people, very clearly by, you know, the, the workmanship. But they may have been done near the same time. And why, you know, the the one where they dig away all the bedrock and leave only columns, a bunch of columns standing up in the air. And there's a theory that that the, the hole that they dug out, it includes the shape of a, a serpent's head, which is representative of something cosmic like a comet or something like that. And those are theories. And I, I think there's some something to that. But the point is, and this is where we're, I'm kind of going because we're going from the past to the future. Past goes way back, a lot farther than we think. And it may include more than the Son of Man in the past. But then this, the Son of Man comes at a particular time when God breathes into this creation and gives them dominion and says to them to replenish the earth. Because evidently, I mean, that's what the Bible says very clearly. It's actually one of the better translations from that far back. Very clearly replenish the earth. Something took away a great deal of the earth, uh, of the people on the earth. I don't think it's just happened once. I think it's happened many times. And since I was a small boy and first walked amongst the cliffs in Houston and then later in California and then out doing geology work in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, I look at these things and I say, catastrophic geology. <laughs> that is, there are these immense events that happen periodically for one reason or another. And some people make it through, and some people don't. And of course, if you if your goal is simply to make it through, that's a poor goal. If your goal is to help others make it through, that is maybe better. But then we have to even look at why you let other help other people get through. But laying down your life for your fellow man is the key to what Christ was teaching us. And so how all that plays out in the future and the past and whether or not you want to uh, pursue these uh, videos and audios and all that kind of stuff, that's completely up to everybody else. Uh, I'll put in a couple of these links because I just happened to copy one of them. You know, and there's, if they want to pursue this. Yeah, I haven't really created a page to deal with these some of these things, but I put in a few notes i guess some of them are on rumble i have all kinds of notes here i can run through but uh, i can't read and talk at the same time <laughs> i'm sure if you look up some of the because so this will have the spelling of some of these people in it so you can find uh the name you know i have a theory about who put whatever is in that room under the the sphinx who put that in that room and you have to go to really ancient texts and then, you, you know, you have to make some jumps now and then. <laughs> and so I can't prove it. And we never got to open it up. Let's go on to the next section to, to try to bring all this together. Tucker Carlson did it. It was about illegals and, and how there, there are all kinds. Actually, uh, OMG, uh, also the guy who does the OMG uh, 
who lost his company and now he's created a new company called OMG. He's always got the hidden camera and everything. Uh, Alita, I think, is the company he was pursuing. And it's full of these illegal immigrants. And they, they're coming through busloads of them. They're reorienting them. They're giving them the, all the cash they need and all the cards and ID they need. And then they're processing and putting them on buses and moving them all over the country by the thousands, tens of thousands of people. And, and before they come in, they throw their ID. They're coming from China and all over the place. And you think, uh, do you have any idea what's going on here? <laughs> do you have any way of uh, dealing with it? Uh, and most of the people won't. And there's no turning back. Uh, yeah, you can look up the, the Sweatman. I was look, reading some of this stuff. You can look up Sweatman. He had a response. And I don't know if I included it in, in there. But uh, I think it is. I think the last one I put up is uh, his response to David Miano. And he tried to... He wasn't nearly as catty as David was. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he, I mean, he was trying. He was trying. And he's in some of the videos with, he knows Graham Hancock, but he's really done some interesting work. I don't want you to take any of these guys as, you know, definitive. I don't want you to take me as definitive. But basically what it seems to me is a uh, cooperation of the fact that I believe that catastrophic archaeology and geology is a real thing. There have been lots of people that have gone before and then the sudden consequences of the wrath of God. We call it the wrath of God because it's the consequences. Now, a lot of times it will rain on the just and unjust alike. But the just may know to get a waterproof covering for your yurt. <laughs> they may be led to shelter. Uh, it's amazing. There was an actual airplane that crashed uh, and uh, there was a large number of people, I mean, a huge number of people that couldn't make it to the flight for all kinds of different reasons. They just weren't on the flight. And nobody could figure out why so many people didn't show up. Because there's always some people don't show up. But I've seen this time and time again when somebody doesn't show up for a place that they would have died had they showed up. <laughs> That's a real thing. I've actually been a benefit of that too. So anyway, but he, uh, this is a plan to bring in all these people for a variety of reasons. One is they want to bankrupt America even more than it's already bankrupt. They want to create all kinds of dissidents and, and mass confusion. When there are food shortages, these people are not going to stand in Lines. A lot of you aren't going to stand in lines. There is the you, if you stand in line long enough, you get up to the front. There won't be any food. But I don't want to create fear. I want to create concern because every one of us is going to need to do some fasting. But we're going to need it. We need to be creating this basic, fundamental. And if we had already done it, and we had tens of thousands of people in the network already doing this, as we've laid it out. We would be on that Homeland Security list. Now, I've been on that list. They've investigated me. They've sent out you know, FBI agents. They weren't. They weren't. Well, actually, there has been FBI agents come to the local post office. And the people at the local post office came to me secretly and told me. <laughs> but uh, they did send um, a guy. What, what, what would they call it? Uh, 
assets. They did send an asset. I knew who he was. I knew it when he called and wanted to come to one of our events. I knew there was something. I didn't know exactly the details, but I knew this is not what it appears. And I put it down, and like I said, somebody miles and miles away, never done this before or since, came all the way to our place, came to my front door, an elderly, elderly woman, holding in her hands like you were holding a pillow with somebody's wedding ring on it, holding in her two hands a magazine, and she said, I thought you would want to read this. And I, I took it as if I was taking a magic sword <laughs> from, from somebody offering me this sword. And I took it with both hands and I thanked them. And I set it aside and then had a little conversation and then later on came in. And I opened it up, just paging through like I had done since I was a little kid, waiting for something to catch my eyes. I was just paging through rapidly. All of a sudden, one page caught my eye, one picture caught my eye, read the subtitle of the picture, and in the subtitle of the picture was the name of the guy who had called me the day before from Oklahoma. And uh, he, it was uh, the article, I read the article, and he, he was been an FBI asset for 20 years. Came out on the witness stand. And this article was about that event on the witness stand. And so I knew. <laughs> and I got a, a second witness from another person, completely different direction, different source, called me out of the blue and warned me. But, of course, it's not them warning me, it's God warning me. That's what you need. You cannot manufacture that. It takes the humblest of heart and a, a servant nature to your being. Or you just want to serve others. You want to save others. Uh, I actually saw a movie recently called Spencer. And uh, not necessarily I recommend that. There's a couple of scenes in that. Certainly not for kids. But uh, I like the actor in, that's in Spencer. And I can't remember what his name is. But I kind of like the guy. In that Spencer, he sees injustice. The character sees injustice. And he has to get involved. He sees people abused and he has to get involved. He has to, he puts his life on the line because he has to, he has to act concerning the weightier matters. And he's not trying to save himself. He actually gets into a lot of trouble <laughs> because of that. Um, okay, so, uh, Tucker Carlson also had this, uh, deep state interview with, uh, Congressman Clay Higgins. Uh, who estimates that 200 FBI assets uh, were in disguise on January 6th. And, of course, I saw that. I knew people that were in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. They were sending me videos the night before and all this stuff. They didn't go into the Capitol as best I know. They should be in this network and not running around over there on January 6th. I warned them that they would be trapped. There was a trap being set. I had no information that there was a trap. I didn't know about, you know, Clay Higgins eventually telling us there were 200 FBI. He says minimum 200 FBI. I will tell you my estimates of plainclothes FBI assets and other assets that were going around there. I just talked to somebody the other day that had saw uh, people, you know, I mean, there, there are videos of people changing their outfits to look like Trump supporters under trees <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> so it's very clear there were all these assets. 
and FBI assets can be people from Antifa and everything else. I he says minimum of two hundred. I I suspect there were no less than three hundred and fifty. And altogether, if you consider all the agencies that might have been involved and the people that might have been involved, we're talking maybe closer to 500 assets in the crowds. And uh, and then many of the guards. Sometimes the people dressed up as guards weren't guards. You know, the Capitol Police. And uh, they were paid to come in and start firing tear gas into as, as part of this this plan. You can, you can see them doing it. it it's an investigation that could go on for decades and decades. But that's, you're not going to get decades and decades. <laughs> and you would need the right kind of people in power. And you won't get the right kind of people in power because you're, most of your Republicans are too corrupt to deal with the corruption in the other parties. And the corruption behind the scenes in the deep state, as they call it. So, but there are so many people that want to live by these dainties of rulers. And what Christ called the reward of unrighteousness or the wages of unrighteousness. And don't want to take the time and the energy to create a daily ministration or the tables that are not a snare. And so they don't do it. And they don't even want to admit that that's what they should be doing. I could give you some more stories but we're, we'll, uh, about local schools, local churches, and they actually come to us sometimes, or to members of our immediate network, and tell us, oh, they can't stand this and they want to do something about it. We have the answer. We, we've even talked to them about the answer. But they want to believe that, well, we believe in Jesus. No, you don't. You don't even know Jesus. I mean, you may know a little bit. I don't want to count them out. I'm not saying, I'm not condemning anybody. But if you don't know all of Jesus, you know, you, you you have to have a real relationship with that divine source of energy and righteousness, that logos. You have to have a connection, which is, as we've explained before, the yod, the divine spark. Each of us have that. We have to get that spark so it's sparking enough to start the engine of righteousness. And then we have to pursue that. So that that's very important that we do that, and we, we don't have to do it on a, uh, uh, in some sort of big monumental way. We have to do it in little ways, and, and God will do the big ways, but we have to walk in the little ways. So we have to form those congregations. We have to learn what a congregation is. We have to start living by faith, hope, and charity, uh, and that may be a gradual process. I'm not telling people get out of the system. I'm saying start cultivating the way of righteousness. And that's what we have to do. And, you know, uh, there were a couple. Oh, there was, uh, I'm going to put another couple links together. Uh, Dr. Campbell uh, covered a parliamentary debate with Andrew James uh, Bridgen. He was an MP. And so I'm going to include that link here. I, I made comments on Facebook and other places where that showed up, YouTube. But uh, I'm going to put them in here in the program since this is kind of a catch-all. And uh, let's see, I don't... Uh, also, you might want to listen to Dr. Luke Montagnier at our numerous scientist page. Added something to that. To a speech by the president of Argentina. Not that these guys are your salvation. 
But there is information. You know, I, I'm surprised that they haven't killed this guy yet. And uh, the money power certainly will. But if if he has God's protection, he might last till doomsday. But then how far away is doomsday? <laughs> so, <laughs> but he had an interesting speech. If people want to pursue it, I'm going to put it here in the chat room so that people can... Javier Millet, I think is the way they pronounce the last name. But he spoke at the World Economic Forum. And uh, there's a YouTube of that. But he said a number of very interesting statements. And uh, I, I won't go into the other. I'm going to probably save the rest of this for uh, next week as we might go into it. But So if you guys have questions, things you want me to address. And uh, so what I'm talking about is in the past, this battle between righteousness and unrighteousness, the system of Nimrod and the system of Abraham system Abraham operated by free will offerings leaving the choice in the hands of the people he formed altars of social welfare where you took care of the needy of your society and of course this allows you to say you know I could help you out uh, you know maybe somebody is you know got beat up they got injured and everything well I'm going to help you out I'm going to feed you so you don't starve right now in this ditch but you're going to have to get on your feet and you know, you're going to have to, uh, I'll give you a, well, I won't give you that. I'll, I'm going to make a note here. And I, we'll save it for another week because it's getting late and I don't want to take this out too far. But that element right there, we see from Abraham to Moses. Moses was doing it with his altars of clay. If, if somebody, you know, the, the 3,000 that wanted to set up a central bank through the Golden Calf. We have an article on Golden Calf. If you're just hearing me for the first time, go to Prepare You, look up Golden Calf, find out what the Golden Calf really was. That's a system. It can support a system of social welfare, but basically it's a banking system. It's where you deposit your wealth in a one-purse situation. And it won't be... You get to have... You were still allowed to have silver if you were a Spartan... Uh, most of the people were not allowed to have silver. Uh, even uh, Hitler said gold in the, and silver in the hands of the people is the enemy of the state. Uh, some people say he didn't say that, but I, I think he did. And based on what I've seen, I, I, will, I will stick to that. But even if he didn't say it, uh, I can take you back to ancient times where, like I said, the Spartans believed that. You didn't want people to have independent individual wealth. You wanted to limit their choices, and that's what they were. That's what Aaron was doing. Is they didn't have any choice over their gold anymore. They still had choice over their silver, but eventually that would be gone. And that's what's happened in America. That's why they took away the gold from American citizens, U.S. citizens, U.S. citizens. Very important. And back in 1933, with HGR 192, and then when they repealed it, it allowed everybody who had been a U.S. citizen. If you have been a U.S. citizen. Anytime in the last 10 years, minimum, you can actually go out to 40 years. If you have any gold or silver in your possession, they can take it. That That's on the books. Public Law 95-147, I think it is. I think it's 147 or 174. It doesn't matter. You don't have to look up all this stuff. The key answer is very simple. The riches of the kingdom... If you have any gold or silver or anything of value, you're supposed to have control over it. You're supposed to have the right to decide, the exousia, to decide how to reallocate that. 
Now, right now, you don't have that about everything that you produce. But what you have to produce, you may have to pay your tally of bricks. You don't get any decision of that. But what you do have a right to decide over, you need to start deciding as if you were Christ. And if you're rich, you can make yourself poor. But it's your decision. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. He was rich and he made himself poor. And it begins to connect you to that divine spark. It will begin to open up your eyes in ways that you don't know they need to be opened. And some of these people, like Andrew James Bridgen, is seeing things that other people don't see. Uh, just like the the Pharisee that came to Jesus at night. He saw that, I know there's something special about you. I know you see things that other people, I know that you, but I don't get this born again thing. I think eventually he got it. And and that, that's the question of who was that? <laughs> we'll be talking about that more as we get through John. But, uh, and I've mentioned it a little bit as we went through Matthew. Who was that guy? Did he have any kids? What, what did those kids do? What, what what influence did they have over the early church? And were any of them there at the fall of Jerusalem? And did they guide the early church back in the ways of righteousness? What was really going on? You know, I give you some writings from 150 A.D., like Justin the Martyr. He's telling you, this is what we're doing. It's written down, well recorded. We know. It's not in the Bible. It's 150. But he's telling you that we got together every week and those that had extra shared with those that didn't have enough. Now, the effect that that's going to have on you, on your community, on the people around about you, it depends on how sincerely you strive to do that. How, how you're willing to lay down your life for your fellow man. That's going to make the difference. And you don't have any control of it, but that's what draws you near God and God near you. That's what draws the divine spark near you so that you may have light where others still remain in darkness. And some of the people that remain in darkness may, through interaction with you, start to love the light. And so there's many layers to that kingdom. And ultimately, God may put you in a place, put you in a way, where you can maybe survive. Now, I don't, I, but it's your soul that you want to survive. Because right now, they're killing the soul of Americans. They're killing the care that gives you a soul that God can receive. And we have to turn that around and go the other way. So, yeah, we've almost used up our three hours. It's dark out. <laughs> so, anyway, but I cut all this out. So, I'm not going to, I'm going to save this other stuff that I have here in the notes. But the future is always in motion, changing all the time. It's the only thing that you can do anything about is your relationship in this moment. And now in this moment, there's a new moment. <laughs> so, you and this is where you have to develop your own walk with God. And this is why I also encourage everybody to meditate and to learn meditation and practice it on a regular basis. And uh, we could go into that for hours and hours, but we won't. And uh, next week we'll start John. And I, I've had some revelations with that. And we will take it from there. 
So until then, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.